Thank you. It is, uh, really is my humble privilege to be with you again. You know, you, I've, I've spoken a few different other churches, and it's, it's always neat to be with the people of God uh, wherever you go. And uh, to be welcomed back is, is, a, is a, even a bigger blessing. Um, so I'm very thankful, Matt. And uh, yes, I, I have known Matt a long time, um, so I do have a lot of stories, but I'm not going to tell them today. We don't have any time. <laughs> Um, but I'm thankful for, for Matt and Shannon and the family, and it's been a great encouragement to me over the years in my ministry, and um, also thankful for Josh. Uh, I think you guys, I hope you know, I believe you have the, the best worship leader in the city right. here at, at Infusion. Not, not just with skill, but with heart and, and love for Christ, passion for Jesus. So I hope you know how blessed you are with that. And then he's amazing what he does with his toes. I'm just like, just like next level, man. Matt texted me uh, last, a week or so ago and, and asked if I'd be willing to preach and it worked out wonderfully. Well, we just got back from vacation ourselves. My family and I were down in Cabo for 10 days and, and uh, I, I said, I don't have a lot of time to prepare. I hope I can, can I, uh, bring a sermon I've already preached before. He said, totally. And so I'm thinking, I'm praying, what do I do? And I'm sitting on the beach and I thought, Jonah. We did, we did a series on Jonah recently. And so not going to go through the whole book, although you can, and I encourage you to go home and read it. It's four chapters. You can literally sit down and read it through in about seven to eight minutes. Uh, we're going to hit the, the tail end of it because the, the story most of us are familiar with um, and, uh, but, but we're going to hit chapter 4, and through that, I really hope to, to leave you today um, just with a greater understanding of the compassion of God for sinners like us, and then, then that would lead us to have a deep compassion for the people that we run into throughout the week in our, in our lives. So let's read uh, the Word of God together, Jonah chapter 4. And I'll read all 11 verses. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And then just so we get a context, what this is talking about, the displeasure is coming from the end of chapter 3 where Jonah goes and preaches to the Ninevites and basically tells them, God's going to judge you unless you repent. And they end up repenting. There's this huge revival that takes place. And uh, Jonah's not happy with that. Okay, we'll find out why. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and now the explanation of it. God, I pray that as we stand here in awe of you, who you are, what you have done, that you would move in each of our hearts, Lord, to give us a greater grasp of your unrelenting grace for sinners. This grace that transforms us to be able to live lives that are centered on you and in your purposes. Use me, weak as I am, Lord, to encourage and to challenge your people here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, this book is named after what you would think would be the star of the story, but Jonah's not the focus of Jonah. He's the co-star, if you will. God is the focus. God is the point. God's the focus and point of the whole Bible, right? And so we have to be careful not to approach this book from a moralistic standpoint and to look at Jonah's life and see what he does and think, okay, I just need to stop doing this and stop doing that and then do this and then do that. It's bigger than that. It's greater than that. This is a book that that opens our eyes to seeing a bit deeper who our God really is. And he reveals himself beautifully through the life of Jonah and through his dealings with Jonah. So we're going to see three truths today. And in these three truths, we're going to see them based in God's character And then we're going to see them revealed, though, through Jonah's self-centeredness. So the title of my sermon is called A God-Centered Life, a life that that is really focused on God. And the main idea today I want you to take home is this, that God's unrelenting grace for sinners transforms them to be centered on Him and His purposes. Jonah, just to do a quick review, you may not be familiar with the story. He was a prophet of God. The story took place about 750 or so years before Christ. And he, he, he ministered to the people of Israel. And then God called him one day to get up and go to a foreign nation. 
that was far away and to go and preach to them. And this nation was not just any nation. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was known as the enemies of, of Israel. These people aren't nice people. They're, they're not people to, to, uh, to really to hang out with. And, and they're, they're like the ancestors of ISIS, where they, they would ride into town and behead people and, and, and abuse the women and, and, and steal children. This is the kind of people that God says, get up and go to Nineveh and preach to them. And tell them that if they don't change it, in 40 days, I'm going to rain down my wrath on this city. And so Jonah, instead of getting up and going, he gets up and runs. And he goes down to Joppa to find a ship that would take him as far away from Nineveh as possible. We see that as he's on the boat, he ends up, and I encourage you to read it yourself, we don't have time to go into every detail, but he ends up being thrown into the water after this huge storm. And we know the story that most of us think of Jonah. He gets followed, swallowed by this great fish, and he's in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, and Finally, and through the belly of the fish, he, he, he seems to repent. He prays this beautiful prayer of deliverance in chapter 2. And then he gets vomited out onto the shore where he goes and finally gets a second chance to obey. And he goes and he preaches a bit reluctantly to Nineveh. And there's this huge revival that takes place. All these people start repenting, humbling themselves before God. And this is where we come to in chapter 4. See, if the story ended in chapter 3, it'd be a great story, right? It'd be a bestseller. It'd be something to write home about. Wow, this huge revival, isn't it wonderful? Look at what Jonah did. But the story's not about Jonah, it's about God. And God continues to deal not only with the people of Nineveh, but with Jonah himself and his heart. And so we see in verse 1 that Jonah is not happy with what happened. And this is point one. A God-centered life delights in God's ways and character. We see Jonah doing the opposite. We see a self-centered life that that in that self-centeredness propagates displeasure in God instead of delight in God. It says, it displeased Jonah. What displeased? Again, that the people repented, that God was gracious. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. And these words in the Hebrew literally tell us that Jonah thought what God was doing was actually ethically wrong, morally evil, injurious, and harmful, that, that somehow God was wrong. And, he, and it says he was angry, and the word literally means he was burning, he was so mad. And so verse 2, he tells us he prays, which is good, that's a good thing to pray to God, but be careful when you're praying where your position of your heart is to start with, because he's praying from a position of mad at God. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see, all in the story of Jonah, we see him running and we don't really know why, but now we get the why. He ran. Why did he run? Because he knew what God was like. And he knew that in this call to to go preach judgment to the people of Nineveh, that there was a chance, and a good chance, by the way, that God would be gracious to these people. 
And so he says, I, I, I run. I run from, from it because I know how you are, God. How did Jonah know how God was? Well, any good Jewish boy at this time would know the story of the Exodus all the way back in the time of Moses in Exodus 34. And this is the second time, if you're familiar with the story of Moses, where he went up to the mountain and, and received the Ten Commandments and the tablets, and he comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and what happens while he's gone, the people get frustrated because he's gone so long that they start worshiping a golden calf, remember? An idol that they had set up to, to worship and say, this is the God that, that rescued you from the land of Egypt. And Moses, in anger, throws down the tablets and they break and, and God deals with the people. And then God, as gracious as he is, gives them another chance. And so Moses goes up to the mountain again to get the tablets once again, the law of God. And as he's there, Exodus 34, verse 5, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, this is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God reveals himself to Moses here, and the people of God knew this about God's character. He, he's, he's a holy God. He will judge sin. But he reveals himself primarily as a gracious God. As a saving God, as a loving God, slow to anger, very patient with his people. We see what Jonah understood here, that the fundamental reality of a God of awesome glory and holiness and grace who is at the center of the universe, this is what shapes everyday life. How often do we consider that? In our day-to-day -day life, life gets mundane and routine and just ho-hum, but, but do we forget that the fundamental reality is the God of the universe is glorious and gracious. And our greatest delight is found in Him. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? We see this, this unrighteous anger fueled by self-centeredness in Jonah. And if we don't guard that, we can, it can lead you to so much frustration that you think that life with God is not worth living. Here we see Jonah's the proverbial child who's seeking to manipulate his parents in this out of control tantrum, right? Which is ugly in a child, but it's, it's despicable in an adult, especially a man of God. Why is he so angry? He's so angry because God is gracious to his enemies. And what Jonah, though, in arrogance, fails to realize is that if it were an evil thing for God to save the Ninevites, if that's morally repugnant, then it would be an equally evil thing for God to deliver Jonah. See, Jonah forgets that he himself is a recipient of grace. 
He now becomes the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, which you, you may recall. Where he's raging at the grace that's shown to that, that wretched brother who's not told the line like he has for all these years. Which of course means that he thinks of himself as deserving. It was just a few verses ago in chapter 2, we, we see that God uh, had, had greatly delivered Jonah, and Jonah prays this wonderful prayer of thanksgiving for, for God's deliverance, and that here he is already forgetting the great marvel and mystery of his undeserved pardon. And now, Jonah's violent rage isn't targeted at the Ninevites, but it's targeted at God himself. Friends, I wonder if today perhaps your joy, your delight in God, in, in God's ways, in what He has done and how He has done it and who He is, I wonder if your delight in that has dissipated. Or worse, that circumstances in your life have brought you to the place of, of Jonah, hating others, Jealous of other success, envious when someone else is, is, is being blessed, or, or, or envious when, when they seem to get grace, when they deserve to pay for something. In those moments, we wish that we were in the center of the universe. See, sin in our hearts, it leads us to desire that place that only, only God can ever have. We want to be king. We, we want to be judge. We want to sit on the throne, but God will not share His throne with anyone. I don't know if you, if I'm crossed in such a way, if I'm, if I'm hurt and angered in such a way, my tendency may be to strike back hard, especially if I'm bigger or stronger, but God Himself, the God of the universe, how does He respond? He responds with a gracious question. Look at the grace of this question that he, that he asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? God probes the heart of Jonah with this question. It, it reveals the heart. And this is what God's questions do. They put us on proper ground before Him because He has every right to question us and we owe Him answers. God often graciously deals with His children in such a way, with questions. Think of it all the way back to the beginning. Adam, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Cain, where is your brother Abel? King Saul, what have you done in making this unlawful sacrifice? David, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in His eyes? Disciples of Christ, who, who do you say that I am? Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? Peter, do you love me? After you denied me three times, do, do you love me? Saul, why are you persecuting me? God's questions are designed to pierce the heart, and I'm wondering if the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart today, asking you such questions. Why are you so angry? 
Why are you so bitter and frustrated? Why, why are you so stubborn and bullheaded? Is it a good thing for you to be angry? Is it a good thing for you to think yourself right and God wrong? That His ways and His providential care for you is not good? Whenever we're angry and it's not in righteous anger, our anger is really directed at God for being God. He's being who He is. And God can't be tamed on the leash of our expectations. He alone is God. You see, Jonah knows this, and this is why he's angry. He has a right theology, but he has a wrong heart. God is exactly who Jonah accuses him of being. Passionately gracious to people who don't deserve it. And may God's radical grace lead us to radical delight in who He is and what He has done. A God-centered life delights in His ways and character. And secondly, a God-centered life finds comfort in God Himself, not in His gifts. In verse 5, it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what, become, what would become of the city. And see, we, we see Jonah's heart is still being stubborn. The insinuation here is that he's, he's preached the message, he did what God told him to do, and, and he doesn't like what God's doing, so he's going to sit down and make himself try to make himself a little shade in the hot desert sun, and, and, and he's going to hope that maybe they'll still rain that fire down on that city. God said 40 days. From our reading of the Scripture, it appears that this revival happened pretty quick. It didn't take 40 days. It was like on it. They were repenting quickly. Jonah's probably thinking at this point, I got 30-something more days. Maybe they'll not follow through. Maybe God will still rain it down. And so he's getting the best place on the city to watch the, the fireworks, if you will. But here we're going to see the providence of God once again. Just as God had earlier appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah and miraculously at just the right time to spare his life, God in His care and His grace towards Jonah providentially cares for him through these next few verses. By first, in verse 6, by appointing a plant. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so we see Jonah out in the Middle Eastern desert, probably gathered a few sticks and things as much as he could to build himself a, a makeshift shelter so he could uh, protect himself from the heat. But God says, I'm going I'm to give you a gift. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to cause this plant to miraculously grow up overnight and this big leaves to cover you and gave you a lot of shade so you can be comforted. And it says at the end of verse 6 that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now think about that. Contrast that with verse 1 of chapter 4. He was exceedingly displeased with what God had done in saving and being gracious to the Ninevites. And now all of a sudden he gets this gift from God for himself and he's really, really happy about it. But, verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. God's got a pretty good sense of humor here too. 
He gives them this shade, and can you just see it? Jonah's like, oh, this plant. Wow, where did this come from? I'm so thankful for the plant. I love my plant. This is wonderful. And then he goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning. God sends a little worm to chew that sucker off, and it's all gone by the morning. And if that's not enough, look what else God plans for Jonah. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. You see what's going on here? The heart that clings too tightly to God's comforting gifts is the same heart that bitterly despises his correcting gifts. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this plant. Thank you for the shade. I love the shade. It's so wonderful. All this, this great gift that you've given me. And then it goes away, and I'm no mad. I just want to die. I hate what you've done. Why did you do this to me? Jonah did not learn what, what Job had to learn the hard way, did he? When in chapter 121 of Job, it said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong, which is exactly what Jonah's doing. He didn't learn what Paul the apostle learned in Philippians 4. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is why he could say, I could do all things through him who strengthens me. Whether I'm up high or whether I'm down low, whether I have a plant over my head to shield me from the scorching sun or whether the scorching sun is beating down on me, I will praise you, God. Now the plant was a good gift from God, wasn't it? It brought joy, it brought comfort, it brought blessing, but then God sent the worm bringing sorrow and disappointment and and loss. And on top of that, then God sends the wind which brings pain and affliction and distress. It's easy for us to see how God can use this plant, but, but how does God use the worm? How does God use the wind? God uses the worm and the wind in his graciousness to save Jonah from a plant-centered life. Being plant-centered is when you're so taken up with the joy of God's good gifts that you end up loving the gifts more than the giver. The Bible has another word for this. It's called idolatry. If we feel that without that certain person in our life or that certain position that we desire or, or, or the certain achievement, our life would not be worth living we may be in deeper idolatry than we think. <clears throat> Friends, family, resources, money, ministry, success, th- these are good things. They're not bad. They're, they're good gifts from God that could be very gratifying, but they are not the purpose of life. Christ died. According to 2 Corinthians 5.15, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so not only was the plant a gift, so was the worm and the wind. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, 
I don't always like those gifts. But often these can be the best gifts because they, they tear off of us those unhealthy thoughts and desires and emotions that, that keep us centered on ourselves as opposed to centered on God. We think sometimes that, that they keep us from joy. If I just had that, I would be happier. I would, I would actually have joy. But, but they actually heighten our joy by bringing us to a closer communion with God. When He takes things away, it's one of the greatest blessings. Charles Spurgeon said it much better than I could years ago when he said, I would suggest to some of you here who have to bear double trouble that God may be preparing you for double usefulness. Or He may be working out of you some unusual form of evil which might not be driven out of you unless His Holy Spirit had used these mysterious methods with you to teach you more fully His mind. And so if you go through the trial, if the scorching heat of life is, is burning on you, that, my friends, can be one of the greatest gifts that God is giving you. An opportunity to let go of the things of the world and to cling to a deeper communion with Jesus. But Jonah still's not seeing it. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And, and, he, and he's so harsh here. In the Hebrew, literally, it's, a sport, it's, a, it's an expletive. This is Jonah's state of heart. He's not centering on God. He's centering on self. And, and so he's delighting in what he wants. And he's trying to find comfort in, in the gifts of God, rather God himself. And lastly, number point three is a God-centered life shares God's compassion for sinners. We said at the beginning that this story is not about Jonah, it's, it's about God. And the more we learn of God and who He is and what He does and how he, how he acts and how He loves and His compassion and His grace, the more that we desire to be like Him. So right along with delighting in Him and in His work and His ways and, and finding our comfort in Him, Him, the one who said, I'll never leave you and never forsake you, finding comfort in Him, not in just what He gives us. Do we share His compassion for those who need His grace? Verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle, which is kind of an odd way to end the book because <laughs> a lot of us are thrown off like, what, what's up with that? Why does God really care about the cows? <clears throat> what he's doing, he's making an argument from the least to the greatest. He's, he's saying, he's trying to teach Jonah his nature, who he is, and he's saying, Jonah, if you care about this plant, if you're so focused on this plant... Won't you be concerned if I rain down fire and brimstone and kill all the cows at least? Could you at least care about cows? And if you can care about cows, could you care for people? People 
who don't know their right hand from the people who are morally, spiritually, in, in every way, they're bankrupt, they're lost, they're blind, they're in darkness, they can't see. They don't know God. They, they don't know who I am. They, wouldn't you care for them, Jonah? Can't you have compassion on them? Do I, as God, not have a right to have compassion on these people? He's teaching Jonah that if, if, if we are going to be centered on God, if we're going to truly love God, then we're going to love whom and what He loves. See, God showed His love to Nineveh by sending that pagan city the message of salvation. And when Jonah reacted negatively to the news that the Ninevites had been saved, he wasn't just showing that he had little regard for the people. He was showing he had little regard for God. And so also today, if, if we allow our differences with others to, to dampen our zeal for them to, to come to know Jesus, to share in this grace that we have so bountifully received, then we may be disregarding those for whom Christ died and simultaneously we may be indicating our lack of regard for God Himself. Jonah saw the moral bankruptcy of the Ninevites and it led him to harshness and condemnation. He despised the evil people of Nineveh and he felt that they deserved destruction. He identified them as outsiders, as sinners, but he viewed himself as an insider. He didn't see himself as a sinner. And there were people like Jonah in Jesus' day as well. We know them as Pharisees, looking down their nose at, at people. And there are people like Jonah in our day as well, and maybe even some of us. This way of looking at people is not a healthy, sound view of the doctrine of sin. It actually is a deficient view of the doctrine of sin because it erodes compassion. When you look at others with your nose down at them as somehow you're better than them, you're revealing you don't know fully the compassion of God. So I plead with you today, by the mercy of God, to once again, let Him deal with your heart. I know I, I need my heart regularly reoriented towards God. This isn't just a one-time thing. This is a, a daily thing of taking up my cross and following Him. My heart will stray and wander and I, I need to be reminded Brian, do I really care? Do I really care for people? Are there trivial things like this plant that I care more about on a daily basis than the eternal life and the souls of, of other, my fellow sinners around me? If I don't share God's compassion for those who don't know their right hand from their left, I'm not as God-centered as I might think. And so what do we do? How do we respond? We look to Christ. The question at the end of Jonah is, is unanswered by Jonah. But it was answered by Jesus. Matthew 12 says Jesus is the one greater than Jonah. That just as Jonah was 
three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We don't become God-centered by becoming moralistic. We become God-centered by letting the unrelenting grace of God transform our hearts, submitting our hearts to Him, humbling ourselves before Him, turning from sin, turning to Christ, trusting Him alone. Not looking at our works as being sufficient to somehow make us better than anybody else, but, but coming at it as a beggar. Just a beggar who, who by the grace of God, He's given me bread. And, and now I have the high privilege of sharing this bread with those who need it just as I. When we read the book of Jonah, not only are we learning about the compassion of God, but we're also looking into the mirror and seeing ourselves. The Orthodox Jews, even to this day, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as a part of their liturgy, they read the book of Jonah, and at the end of the reading, they together say, we are Jonah. That's who we are. We're all Jonah, except one. Jonah was called to leave a good place, doing a good work, enjoying a good life. And God said, I want you to go to another place, do a different work for the sake of people I love, people who are facing an imminent judgment. And Jonah said, no. Jesus was in heaven, ruling the universe by His word and power, adored by angels. He, he was in the best place, doing the best work, enjoying the best life and then the Father said, go to another place, a place where you will be utterly rejected. You're going to live a life that will lead to torture, crucifixion, and death. You will become an atoning sacrifice for people I love who are facing an eternal judgment. And Jesus said, yes. Recognizing that Jesus did all of this on our behalf then moves us from being the kind of people who care about our own comfort, our own reputation, our own success, to caring more about God's will and God's ways and for the people all around us whom we are called to love and serve. And being those who are loved much, we are now freed to love much.